You are listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Proteum Machining, and this week I am very happy to welcome Chris Lee. Welcome, Chris. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. It's an absolute honor to be here. Big fan and looking forward to uh, hopefully providing some value to uh, your listeners here. I think definitely so. <laughs> we were saying just before we started that like, I'm so used to hearing your voice too, because I listen to the DFX podcast and... It's it's so weird seeing it come out of a person because I'm just so used to this like amorphous vo- voice in my head while I'm doing some work. So I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, same here. I've actually never seen your face before until today. So it's nice to put it all together, uh, see that sound come out of your mouth hole. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's good. So for anybody who doesn't know who you are and what you do, what are all the details? Uh, so basically, currently I work at Hadrian Automation and the company that I'm working for is trying to bring manufacturing up to the current state of like our technology. So like update a lot of the old processes and workflows that sometimes I think we all feel like kind of hinder the ability to be fast and making parts and stuff. Um, I guess a really, I guess the only way to properly explain this, I'm going to go back to like before I was a machinist and, and kind of lead up to how I got here. I think uh, I would like to share that so that I, maybe if someone's on the fence about joining our industry or maybe someone is unhappy, this will provide some kind of like value that someone else kind of went through that. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, that was one reason I really wanted to have you on is Jamie and I have been talking a lot about highlighting people who have kind of an abnormal path into yes. manufacturing and, you know, hearing your story on your podcast and, and throughout your Instagram posts and stuff, you kind of gave up pretty solid career that makes good money to just like, well, manufacturing seems cool. Let's do that. So yeah, let's get into your backstory. How did you get to where you are now? Yeah. So it all, basically I, for those who don't know, I was a oncology nurse for about 11 years. I worked with cancer patients. I did chemotherapies and stuff like that. And while I was going through that, that kind of job does have a pretty profound impact on a human being, right? Because just being around life and death constantly, it does shape the way that your your brain kind of functions. Whether you like it or not, it's hap- it, it'll happen. And somewhere along the lines, I started to realize that life is truly short. You never know when your your time is up and it's time to hang up the coat there. So you should really take the time that you have, uh, not for granted, and take advantage of the time that you do have here, right? So that kind of shaped a lot of what my brain was going through at the time. And then on the on the less heavier side, I had just bought a motorcycle. And it's an old 80s Honda motorcycle, a 1982 CBF 900F. And nobody makes stuff for it anymore. But I wanted stuff. I wanted an exhaust. I wanted like, you know, all the, the cool stuff. So I was like, okay, well, since I can't buy anything, can I make something? And I was like, okay, what can I make, right? And of course, me being an absolute novice to anything, meaning like I have never wrenched anything in my life before, nor have I been exposed to like manufacturing process or anything like that prior to this to that moment in time. And of course, my 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 naive self was like, oh, an exhaust would be pretty cool for my for my bike. Let's let's make an exhaust. If I had known what I know now, I never would have done it. I think the sheer amount of like work it took to actually produce that exhaust would have scared anybody who like knew ahead of time. But because I was so dumb, I didn't know. So I was basically just kind of like fumbling through it. And anytime that I got to a point that I wanted to give up, it was too late because I'm kind of pot committed. I just got to keep pushing. It literally took me like two and a half years. I learned how to weld, pipe bend, like prototype. I had to source pipe benders. I found a mandrel bender. I had to buy dies. 
I ended up doing like a production run of 25 because during this time I was posting it on like an old forum. And like, I just started getting hit up by a bunch of dudes like, hey, if you're going to build this, can you make me one too? And I was like, sure, if you believe that I can even make one, like, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll do a run. Like, I don't even believe that I can do it. So I told them like, I hope you guys know, literally have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just trying to do it. We'll see what happens. But, you know, that was like, ended up being like a 50 page like form document at the end of it. And I, I literally just posted everything. And I was completely honest with everyone. Like, I'm going to try to build the best exhaust I could possibly build. So I started like researching like exhaust firing order, how thing, how the pressure works inside of a cylinder, how that gets vented. And it's like went in a really deep diving hole. Long story short, made prototype exhaust, took a video. Everyone loved it. I ended up having to find places to help me manufacture that. So like outsourcing the bending and, and the welding and things like that. Created the 25 and then sold them all over the world. Like I was shipping to Australia, New Zealand, like England, all over the US. I have a couple left now. I'm saving two for myself, but that pivot point in my life, like I remember when I made the first sale of that exhaust, I looked at my girlfriend, now wife, and I was like, I can do this. Like I've been thinking about leaving the nursing career for a long time. It actually took me nine months before I actually said, yeah. And that point for me was when I sold that exhaust and my customer sent a picture of my exhaust on his bike. And he's just like, you know, in a video of him riding down the street and I could not have smiled any bigger like my face would have fell off like that's it was, amazing it was the happiest moment of my life and i just rem- one of the happiest moments of my life um and i just remember like okay if i can do this like then i can do it like i can make it in this manufacturing quote-unquote industry and at that time i didn't even know like what i wanted to do i just knew that i like making stuff and like active like selling it and making people happy that was like a really cool loop right of like feedback and stuff well and you kind of um, touched on a lot of parts of manufacturing at that point i mean like you said like oh, outsourcing yeah. and welding and running a business and you know it wasn't just i feel like a lot of us start just on one of those things like i'm going to learn to weld some pieces of metal together or like i'm going to learn to machine you know a, a block off plate for my my motorcycle but you were like nope i'm, I'm all in let's do all of the things yeah like i was i had to source correct stainless steel i was learning how to like do pie cuts so that i could tack well like curves together because that's very difficult if you guys don't know like trying to get like bends around a pipe and then like you need to dodge your frame and like clearance for your oil pan and all that stuff like it it was crazy i like i said if i knew what i was doing i would have talked myself out of it because but it was it was really difficult i just remember working from like seven to five at the nursing job i would go home I would research from like six to midnight. And then there are times when I had a friend who owned a micro, micro a motorcycle shop and I would go there at night and borrow his welder. And I would just teach myself how to like do simple welds. Like my welds look like bird poops, right? They weren't great, but they were enough to get me like to the prototype basically. And so then you said you didn't have any welding experience or anything. Did you no. have any inkling as a kid that like this kind of mechanical stuff was what you wanted to do? Or like, was this mm-hmm. just the first and anything this is the first anything i was a actually about to go to college for music theory i was a, mu- a musician i played like saxophone i played like trumpet brass instruments tuba trump like all that stuff right piano guitar and like i was gonna go in for music and then at the time this is like early 2000s music wasn't quite where it was now as far as like being able to like home produce and make a living out of it so i kind of talked myself out of that and tried to find other avenues of like work. And I went through this like whole gambit of industries. Like 
I worked as at LAX for a commercial airline company. So I was doing like check-ins for people. I worked for a chemical preservative import export company. So I did a lot of logistics stuff. I worked as a travel agent. I worked at like retail stores. I worked at Radio Shack, RIP, like all sorts (laughs) of like the random places, right? So that then, makes your story even more atypical because I feel like every most everyone I've had on the podcast at least had some inkling of like, I'm going into mechanical stuff. Like, you know, I don't know what it is, but I've taken apart stuff as a kid. I'm rebuilding stuff, you know, all that. that. So the fact that you found it at such a later point in your life and have just kind of stuck with it is, is really amazing. It's really cool to see. And I was really upset that like I've never crossed paths with anybody that did it. We didn't have a shop class at school. I didn't have anybody I knew that was in manufacturing. So like I had no contact with it. And just I wish I would have gotten into it sooner, right? Because most of the industry, most of my coworkers are guys that have been in it for like 10, 15 years. They started out in high school and like, you know, their dad did it, their grandfather did it and stuff. And um, I, I wish I would have had that definitely. Because like I'm talking, the level of experience I had was my friend asked me one time to tighten a bolt on his motorcycle. And I over-tightened it so much, I snapped the bullhead off. Oh, no. That was my experience going into all this. Like, no concept of torque, no concept of, like, I didn't even know you could strip a bullhead with that big of a, uh, you know, wrench or whatever. <laughs> so, like, it was bad. Like, and when I took a lot of, like, learning, a lot of, like, uh, just figuring out how to do things and, like, not, I think a lot of it was, like, the mental battle of, like, it's very easy to talk yourself out of doing things. So a lot of times I just feel like, you know, tonight I'm just here. I'm going to try to weld these two plates together without burning my hands. And then every night I would go in there. I'm like, all right, tonight I'm going to try to make this look less like bird poop and more like dimes. And then tonight <laughs> I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put these angle plates at 90 degrees. And I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to weld this angle plate together. Right. So like, it's just practice. Like the more you do it, the better you get, try to find one thing that you can improve every day. And then like just one step at a time, basically. And then, I basically did this for each like process. Even finding vendors was like, could be its own masterclass. Vetting somebody, like you're about to pay someone a lot of money to do something. Can you trust them? Like, is their work good? And I think for me, because this was coming out of my own pocket for like the initial startup for making the exhaust, I was very scared about like investing in myself because I had zero confidence in my ability, right? Because I was still trying to figure this out. And I think I was very in the mindset of like, I need this to be perfect because I cannot lose. So I was very like perfectionist OCD about everything. Like I needed to welder to be able to do welds that I thought were really good looking, that were very functionally strong. The benders had to be immaculate. I I didn't want any like, you know, I didn't want the finish to be a certain way. And I was very particular about things like that. Measuring like length from the cylinder to the exhaust connector from there. Everything had to be like perfect. So like I spent a lot of time stressing over the details of stuff. And then that just basically, yeah, led to doing all that. I went through all those jobs. I went into nursing. I got the motorcycle, did like sell, convinced my wife, like, look, I can do this. And then from there, it's like, well, what do I do now? Like, how exactly do you do this step? Right. And the first thing that I did was I found a community college near me and called Mount Sac. And I just started visiting community colleges looking for shops. And because right after the exhaust, the next thing that come to mind, like, okay, I still want to continue making things for motorcycle. What's the next step? Oh, these guys are making these really cool, like clutch covers or like handlebar things or whatever. And I'm like, how do they do that? And I'm like, CNC, enter, like Google, right? Like, <laughs> and this thing pops. So I'm like, what is this? I'm like, you can cut metal. Like, that's how naive I was. Like, I had no idea that you could use metal to cut metal. That concept was completely foreign to me. And then... 
I started to realize, okay, this is what I want to do. And this happened to be around the time that like Fusion had just kind of sprung up and they were giving out like free licenses to people that try out and stuff. And I remember downloading it and I would go to YouTube and go Fusion 360, like how? And I remember seeing like videos of Saunders. I remember seeing videos of like just Lars and everyone that would like post these amazing, I'm like, holy crap. So I spent like the next, I would say like three to six months learning just how to CAD design program. And I would just do that in my evening time. I would just walk around the house and be like, oh, it'd be cool if I had this little clip for this remote so it stopped losing it. And I would go and try to like design it with the calipers and figure this stuff out. And I spent a lot of time just kind of going through like, okay, how do I use each toolpath properly? Do I understand the concepts of this and stuff? And then I was like, all right, well, the next step is to take all this theory into practice. So then I went online and I searched for like, what is a cheap CNC machine? that I could fit in the living room of my apartment. And I was then basically the Carbide 3D Nomad popped up and I found on the forum somebody selling like a used one and then bought from him for pretty cheap. And then I put it literally in my living room. It was like four feet from my kitchen table and four feet from my like TV and couch. So it was not, (laughs) it was not a pleasant year for everyone living with me at the time because I was basically just like, you can imagine somebody who doesn't understand feeds and speeds and, and chip load and things like that burying a three millimeter end mill into aluminum at right. all hours just of the night. Chatter so city chatter, all day. Just snapping end mills like constantly. It was uh, it was quite a learning curve. But the good thing about the Nomad is like, it's kind of built for that. It's meant to like, it's okay to break things. You're not going to break the machine. And like, I basically then turned on Instagram and I started documenting like my journey through this, like posting the things that I made, posting the things that I was trying to do. And actually because of that, I, that's how I met Ed. I was asking him questions because he had a Bantam Tools CNC at the time, I think a Nomad as well. And then I ended up meeting up with Winston through Instagram questions and thing, and that's how we got to know each other. And then that led to the DFX podcast eventually. And then from basically from there, it was like, okay, I can I can break stuff. I can sometimes make some things on this machine. What's like the next thing? All right. So I went back to this community college and I started looking for not like classes, but more about like which programs will let me touch a machine? Because no one's going to hire me if I'm like, oh yeah, my resume shows I can use a Carbide Nomad. Nobody cares about that. They want to see like, oh, you've used an industrial machine, you've programmed you know, G-code by hand or something like that at the time. I was like, okay. Uh, I went to like about two semesters at the community college. It was called indis- industrial design engineering, which is basically a fancy term to say you're designing things, but you're also making the things that you design. Uh, the guy there, the dean of directors there, Stephen, he's a super cool guy, but he wanted to bring like form and function together so that you can understand like design for manufacturing. Because it's all great in CAD space when you can do all these like crazy radiuses and fillets and all these like impossible things to make. But when you actually try to make them, you realize, oh, I can't make that sharp edge into that corner. End mills right. don't work that way, right? Like, yeah, I can't so, put a two millimeter end mill down 20 <laughs> inches and yeah, it'll be okay. Yeah. So like that was actually really cool because he made us like, you need to curve your design thoughts because the manufacturing process is just as important as your design. So, but more ultimately, he trusted me enough to use like, he had a Haas mini melt there and they also had Haas like ST lathe or something like that, if I remember correctly. Um, so when I got there, I was basically doing the class, learning SolidWorks, doing some CAD design as well. And then my most fun is like after class, I would get to stay at the shop. 
and I would basically just stay till they kicked me out like at 9 p.m. or something. And I would just be learning how to use the Haas. I met a friend there who's now like a close friend at the time, a mentor who used to be a tool and die maker, super smart guy. He and I just like hit it off. We're still close today. And like, he kind of carried me under his wing and shared a lot of his knowledge with me. And like, we made a lot of cool stuff at that, at that school. So like they had this uh, Morgan press, which is like a manual injection mold press. And I was like, what's, what's this thing? And he's like, oh, it's injection molding. I was like, what's that? And then like, I just watched the video. I'm like, blew my mind. I was like, another thing that I had no idea that existed, right? So we actually started making little baby like injection molds for like headphone covers. And there were, there were the covers that the class would end up using because they were 3D printing them before, but each one would take like two hours to make. But we were injection molding them in like 15 seconds and popping them out. So like, I learned mold design from him. I made a couple like prototypes and things like that. And ultimately, I think that pushed me into finding my first job. My first real job was in injection and the injection molding process. So I found a company. Before that, though, you were still working full time as a nurse. Yes. So like I basically managed my schedule so that I could go to class three times a week, but I would still be able to work full time as a nurse. And then, yeah, I would kind of like balance that. So when I was looking for the first job, obviously your first job with no experience, the pay is going to be significantly different. So I had to basically prep my wallet here for the next couple of years that I knew <laughs> that it was going to be kind of a rough transition. So my first year, what I did was I worked it out where I could work, uh, probably like shift my time into the evening so that I could work during the day. So at the mold place, I worked from like seven to four, and then I would drive an hour and a half to the other, the nursing job. And I worked from like six to 10 or six to 11, sometimes depending like what patients that we had that day. I did this for about a year and a half before I got the next job, which I'll talk about. And then at that point, it was when I could finally like leave the nursing thing for good for two reasons. One, I had a lot of patients in the middle of their chemo treatments and I didn't want to leave them in the middle of that. I wanted to see that through. And then the other one was, you know, finding a replacement before I left, making sure that they were okay. That was super important to me. And also the stability finally with that second job, I was able to kind of like uh, not eat a couple of noodles ramen every day, right? So I, <laughs> I could actually support myself a little bit better. Right. Uh, but that that first job with the mold injection was super cool. It was silicone injection molding, which is a lot harder than plastic. The tolerance is a lot tighter. I started there for six months doing mold design. So I learned all about mold designs. This is the first time I had to read a print, by the way. And I don't know if you've ever seen an injection mold print, but it is chaotic. There are like levels and layers of like parts stacked on top of each other and bolts and pins and things. And it's very, it was difficult for me at the time to discern what I was looking at because everything's just stacked on top. But I learned print reading there. I did mold design and then I kept pushing like, hey, I really want to like learn how to like use a real machine and I can kind of program on my own. And I show them the things I was doing and they're like, okay, you know, you can try doing this thing. We'll let you, we'll let you program a machine like graphite for the electrodes. And I was like, okay, cool. What's that? And then I basically had to learn how to design electrodes for like, they would, they would basically EDM sinker, like mold inserts, basically what the part face touches when it comes out. And that was my first foray into like designing like real application, like manufacturing stuff. I used Mastercam there. I learned that as well. And then as I was going through this, I'm also, I ended up also being on the board of like advisory for that community college. So like every so often I would come in, we would talk about like the curriculum and things like that. And I met somebody who worked for an aerospace company that was looking for a five axis programmer. 
And I kind of just got to know him and I was like, hey, I'll be honest, like the only experience I have with the five axis at the time was the pocket and C. And like pocket and C, oh, I kind of skipped this, but like, so after the Nomad, I was posting all these on Instagram, pocket and C actually reached out to me. They sent me a pocket and C for free for like, like a couple, actually almost a year, I think. And I was like basically using it and posting some things. And I learned a lot about five axis on that machine. And I'm even to this day, I'm very grateful for them for that because if without them, I never would have gotten the ability to like try five axis tool pass and actually like learn how to do some of this stuff. Right. So I think a combination of their generosity and actually Autodesk Fusion's generosity of giving us five axis tool pass for free at that point allowed me to like learn without going back to school and like paying a bunch of money and stuff like that. So, so that, so then jumping forward. I told this aerospace company, I was like, look, I, I only have this experience in three axis. I do five axis stuff at home. If you want to give me a chance, I'm, I know I can do it. And then they, they said, okay, we'll give you a shot. That's when I left the nursing job for good. I left the mold job. And then I worked there for about a year and six months. And like, it was, it was the first time I felt free because I was able to like, actually like go out and do stuff and learn and not have people looking over my shoulders saying that I couldn't do it. It was more about, if you want to do it, go do it. Like, just go figure it out. I was like, okay. They, they just bought a Doosan DVF 500 or 5,000, the five axis scenes. Yeah. And then they had a bunch of Doosan Lynx 2100, like live turn lanes, like small guys, like with main and sub spindles. So like, it was a playground for me, man. Like they were just like, we don't have anybody that can run this. So you got to figure it out. I was like, okay, like I love that. So I learned how to run the lathe. I did a bunch of like really, in my opinion, crazy like main sub spindle transfers on really big parts that probably shouldn't have been made on that thing. <laughs> Cause I, they were trying to do like six, seven inch parts on that really tiny life turn lathe. And I don't think that mill is big enough for that. It was really scary. Some of the stuff I was doing, but it, it was really fun. It was the first time I had to do a lot of manual programming because we didn't have good posts for the transfers and things. So I had to figure out how to like make templates and basically manually stitch two programs together for the transfer. Was and that then, place also Mastercam? That place was also Mastercam. Yeah. So like they were kind of your typical old school, like mom and pop, like aerospace shop. They had a lot of contracts from the government and things like that to make random parts. Not only did they make machine parts, but they also did a lot of like rubber seals for aircrafts. So like every time you walk into an airplane, if you look at the door, there's a gray seal. Like those are the seals that they were making, basically. So, oh, cool. Just a cool note if you ever get into an airplane. So that place was like really cool. The people there are great. They allow me to just flourish. Like no, no, like checking me on like don't do that. It was like just go do it. And I just started like like having a lot of fun figuring things out. I set up a lot of processes for them. I, it was the first time in that company's history that there was like documentation on like how to do something <laughs> and like, you know, like how to run a lay, how to run this water jet, how to do this thing or process. So like, it was a really, really fun experience being there. And I just remember, I think, yeah. So about a year and six months after that, I get this random like Instagram message from a guy named Jamie Underwood asking me if I'd be interested in working in Amazon. And I was like, First of all, I don't even know how you found me. I'm just like some random dude posting stuff on my Nomad. So I ended up meeting up with him. And obviously, the first thing that he shows me walking in through the door at Amazon was this blue painted Kern HD. And I my my and this was at the time when like I, I say like Marv was at the height of his Instagram posting. So the Kern was like a very intriguing machine to all of us, right? Because it was oh, like yeah. the first time we were hearing about you can machine like mirrored surfaces and all this like crazy stuff that it was doing. So when I saw it, I like 
I literally, my soul leapt out of my body. I was so excited. <laughs> and then, and then I looked down the hall and not only is this machine shop like immaculate, like clean and not what I'm used to. Right. Cause the last two places I worked for, I think are typical, but I see a Hermley C32U with a pallet system attached to it. I see a huge DMC three axis, like gantry machine. And then I see like a, a DMC, uh, a, another like life tool lathe that they had. They had a water jet, they had an EDM. And I was like, this is like a prototyping playground. You can like make anything here and stuff. So it didn't take long before that where I ended up joining Amazon, worked on their project Kuiper satellite program. And that's where I learned Hypermill. And same, right? Like just really f- nurtured my curiosity and like the want to learn. And I was basically given the best tools on earth in my mind, like to, to play on, right? What could be better than having a Kern and a Hermley at your disposal to do like whatever you want? So, so. exactly. Yeah. So h- how was the learning curve for Hypermill? Cause I know, you know, Fusion's like the easiest, then you jump up to like Mastercam where it's like, okay, this could be a little bit more user-friendly. And I've heard that Hypermill is even more on top of that, you know, Hypermill and NX are kind of deep, deep, deep rabbit holes with many, many clicks to get what you want. <laughs> I would say that my transition from Mastercam to Hypermill was not that bad because in some sense, in some ways, the way that you do things in Mastercam kind of applies to the way you do things in Hypermill and the sense of like drawing a line, creating surfaces and stuff. It was very reminiscent of when I was designing those electrodes, like that stuff carried over well. As far as like the tool paths, that was just like a whole new ball game because they have a completely different set of tool paths that you can use really great strategies that I've never seen before. So like there was a learning curve. It did take me a couple months to do it. Jamie had set up a pretty nice like tool database and workflow there. So a lot of the things that would make an inexperienced machinist like myself struggle, he kind of took a lot of those blockers away. And what I mean by that is like when I went to go do like a roughing tool path, I would I would pick the tool path and select a tool. And then the tool would bring in its own feeds and speeds and technology parameters automatically kind of preset. And then all I would have to do is choose, am I doing like tricodial roughing? Am I doing light roughing, heavy roughing? And those feeds and speeds and things would automatically change for me, the depth of cut, the width of cut. It took a lot of the thinking and like the the things that I call like what old old school machinists have like gut instinct about. Like if you add them, hey, what's what's a good feed and speed? It's like, eh, you know, 40 inches by... Or it's like, there's no real science to it. It's more about like, this is what I've done before. I know it works. It should work for that. But I think uh, Jamie and the team at Amazon, previously Facebook before Amazon bought it, they develop like a really neat science-backed system for like developing tool technology, like actually testing tools until the point of failure, recording that, backing off 10%, knowing that this is your limit and changing those like things for different like usages for these tools. So it made the transition very easy and I was very, it was very easy to get up to speed and like I could bring you, I can bring anybody in that, in that setting and they would thrive in like it's just a couple of weeks. Like it would, it'd be no problem because most of the hard stuff had been taken away. And ultimately when you learn the tool pass, you learn what to click and what not to click, how to do things like, you know, it's all very similar. It's just, where is this button that does this one thing that I want? And then once you find it, you kind of know like, all right, cool. That's how I, that's how I changed that like variable or whatever. So I'd say the transition to Hypermill would have been a lot harder if I was just coming from Fusion because I think Fusion has a different way of approaching how they do their design and and, and which I actually prefer because I come from like a 
Photoshop, Illustrator, Adobe background, and I felt like their design was very similar to that mindset. And I think Mastercam is more like AutoCAD or some kind of like evolution of that. And then I think Hypermill kind of falls in line with that as well, as far as like the design CAD aspect of it. Totally, yeah. Yeah, I remember going from Mastercam to Fusion and struggling because I was like, I know what I want to do. Yeah. I know what it's called in Mastercam and I have no (laughs) idea where to look for it in Fusion. And like then... Not then once I learned Fusion, you know, I like touched in Gibbs Cam and a few other ones, and it's the same thing. It's like I know exactly what I want to do. I'm so frustrated because this yep. would have been 10 seconds in Fusion or this would have been 10 seconds in Mastercam, and now I don't know where it is. Yeah, no, and and that that's always there. Like even to this day, I'm still learning all the ins and outs of Ibermill, and there's always like, man, how do I do this? And there's you know, the learning never ends to perfect the art of like toolpath creation and stuff. So um yeah, I think that treasure was actually not that bad. It was actually pretty cool. And like, and then we also had like internal simulation that was inside of Hypermill. That's actually really well. And if you if you set all that stuff up correctly, we actually use it as like our our law. Like if it passed simulation, full send on the machine, we don't stand in front and watch. We don't have time for that. So we took advantage of night runs constantly. So we would program during the day. We could uh we could run a couple tool paths, like we would rough and then we would program the next step. While it's roughing and we just constantly be updating. Once we had a program created up a good part, we would just set up like 10 pallets and full send at night, come in the morning, machine would still be running. And that was basically how we operated there at Amazon. Cause like once their project for the satellite started going, it was a pretty it was my first time foray into like what a critical timeline for a hardware delivery is. Understanding like I was getting parts. I think the worst was like at 6 p.m. on a Friday and was being asked to deliver Saturday morning in Redmond, Washington. And I was like, okay, yeah, I think I can do this. And then just like, holy crap, like, am I going to make this deadline? I would call all the FedExes and UPSs in the area and find out what's your last like cutoff time for tonight. And then just like bang this out and rough it through. So like that place really forged, it was like forged in a fire, like the ability to do really fast turnarounds, complex parts. Um, obviously it helps to have really high-end machines like the Hermley and the Kern. Because I'm, I don't need to worry about dialing in tolerances of the things. Because once, once you have that set up, I didn't have to worry about it too much. Because our toolpathing strategies and parameters were all very consistent, so there was less guesswork on that end. So that definitely helped a lot. But yeah, that 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 place really trained me to be fast and to understand like how to make a part quickly and also make it correctly to print, right? And like all the things that was going on in that. So, and then as I was as I was going through that. Jamie actually had left Amazon to go to Hadrian. And I remember uh, really sad seeing him go. And then also kind of being curious as to like, well, what would be so interesting that would make you leave here? And then I had asked him like, hey, can I, can I come down and check out what you're doing in a few months or something? And I remember going over there and just talking to the people there. And I was like, whoa, like this is, this is the future that Winston and I often talk about. Like, what manufacturing could be if you were to focus your priorities not on just making the part, but how you make the part before the part gets made, right? Like all the process and all the things beforehand, like fixing those issues, fixing those things, streamlining that, making it all talk within the same system. I'm sure everyone listening right now has this experience of like, you want to get a vendor to make something, you send an email, they say, yeah, we can do this in three weeks or whatever. And okay, cool. Where's the PO? You have to wait. And then, oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't get stock. I'm going to be like two, three days late, but you don't find out until a day before the deadline that it was going to be late. Something happens. You know, this whole like 
workflow is really bad for when we need parts like for on a certain timeline to meet like testing or, or whatever, right? I think the way that I think about the manufacturing industry is like we're in the midst of like the next space race. And in order to keep up with this kind of demand, it's very we we need an infrastructure that can support the growth. And the problem is going to be if we cannot support the growth in the US, then we have no choice but to send it outside, which is not good for us, right? It's not good to ever send your technology overseas to have someone else make your stuff because you can't make it in-house. So, Right. Well, it's not even possible with a lot of that stuff, right. at least I mean, with I, current ITAR and all that. I, yeah, ITAR is not going to let you do anything. So like, I think when I just started to think about everything collectively, right, the state of manufacturing in the U.S., what I think was going to happen in the future with in the next 10 years, I just felt like what Hadrian's mission was doing aligned with what it was that I wanted to do when I left nursing for the first time. I remember thinking to myself at the time, like, you know, what could be more fulfilling than being with these patients as they go through like their treatment and this process and this life journey with them? And I remember thinking about Hadrian as like a legacy of like, man, I think working for a company like this, even if it didn't succeed, I would be very proud to have at least said that I was a part of this this mission that we had at least tried to do something of this scale, right? So totally, yeah. Uh, yeah, so ultimately, that's why I ended up leaving Amazon and why I joined Hadrian. I've been there since it looks like February, so about four months now, and I it's been a crazy ride there. Like the the speed of iteration there is unlike anything I've ever seen. I remember the first week or second week I was there, there was an issue in one of the software systems that we were using for Topaz generation, and I I messaged the guy who was on the team to fix it, and then he literally walked over my desk. Okay, I see the problem. Walk back to his desk, email goes out. Hey guys, here's a new test build download. This has been updated. And I, I was like, dude, like, are you kidding me? Like, imagine like how long that would have taken in any other like place. Like, there is no iteration or development that quick. And I when I saw that, I was like, okay, yeah, this is why I'm I was excited to be here. And like I think and being there for since the last four months, like it the amount of like I I'll explain one thing. One thing that I've seen there in the last four months that they've had, it was like basically pool comping, like offsets that follow the job. So what I mean by that is like, we have a job here today. We're doing all this like cutting. We comped a couple end mills or whatever, and that gets stored with the job. So when the job comes back, that comp gets kind of added back into the job. And you're saying, well, how does... How does that work? Because what if the tool changes? What if it's a new tool or a tool that wasn't sworn? Well, each tool gets measured you know, by a laser, and then the comp gets adjusted after that diameter. So as long as your process and like your, the way the tool path is cutting is the same, we've had really pretty good results with like it repeating like that with minimal. Like, and that, that in itself like blew my mind. Right? Like the fact that we have like technology that they can do things like that. So that was really exciting for me. That's one of the one of the craziest things that I've seen so far being implemented that we're actually using in practice and it's working for us. But yeah, like the the goal that I've always had, and I think when Jamie and I first talked, it was like the dream would be to like be on an island somewhere in my underwear programming and sending parts to a machine anywhere in the world to make. Right. If we could somehow figure out a way to do that, like that would give us a lot of the uh the power and technology that we do need to kind of like get into this next like race here. So that is like the overarching like journey of like how I got into manufacturing, like why 
like, and I hope anyone that's listening, if they're still listening, if they're not bored yet, that uh, if you're ever on the fence about like doing something life-changing, like a career change, it's never too late. Like for me, I was in my mid thirties at the time uh, and I did it. And I, the only thing that I regret is that I didn't do it sooner, that I spent those nine months doubting my abilities and, and my confidence. And like, I went back and forth worrying about a lot of things that like, that didn't matter, like money. Ultimately, there's always a way to make money, but there's not a lot of ways to make you happy, right? So like, I think focusing on the correct things, taking each thing like incrementally one step at a time, and then not letting yourself be your own blocker of like self-doubt and like lack of confidence and things like that. So um, yeah, so that's basically the entire summary of like how I got here, why I got here, and like that's why so I love cool. this industry so much. So yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. So if you were speaking to yourself that many years ago right now, what would you say is somebody's good first step into this? What what would you recommend somebody do? Learn as much as you can for free. There's no reason to go pay for a school anymore. Knowledge is pretty much everywhere. I mean, in the invent of like ChatGPT and all this stuff, like we have, you have everything that you need for free at your fingertips. If you want, you just got to go find it, right? Learn as much as you can and never say no to anything. So I think what I mean by that is like, you never know like what an opportunity or a situation will kind of like bring up for you. So I remember during those like three or four years that I was in this transition period, I would say yes to everything. Meaning if somebody came up to me and asked me, hey, can you do this for me? Even if it had nothing to do with what I was doing, I would say yes. And the reason for that is you have no idea what you can learn from this that might help you in what you're doing. You have no idea who you're going to meet that might change your life. You have no idea how this might affect your, your thinking process that might help you. So say yes to everything, no matter what it is and no matter who it's coming from. That was a really big impact because like, I think doing that helped me meet a lot of amazing people that have shaped my career in my life and then also changed the way that I approach life in general, right? Like it was like in a really simple but amazing concept. And also like don't spend too much time worrying about failure because you're going to fail. It's inevitable, but it's how fast you can learn from that failure and kind of like pivot back and grow from that experience, right? Because there's the faster you fail, the faster you learn, the better you get quicker, right? If you take too long to fail, you're just going to learn slower, in my opinion. Totally, so, yeah. Well, and one thing I noticed from your story that parallels mine a little bit, when you were talking about going to the five-axis shop, don't be afraid to tell people that you don't know something, but that you're willing to learn. Like, that's how I got my first job. I, I went, I had literally just started school for machine tool. Like, I think I was in my first semester and saw a job opening for a Mastercam programmer and went to it and was like, I don't know Mastercam, but I will. Like, and they were like, well, we can't pay you, but you can work here for a little while. And I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, I had that opportunity and I took it. But yeah, don't be afraid to push outside your boundaries a little bit. Just let them know like, no, that's not me yet, but it could be. And, and I'll try. Yeah. And there's, and if there's one group of people that you can't lie to, it's a machinist. Like, there's no way. Like, they'll be able to tell in like 10 seconds if you know what you're doing or not. So I've always had the mentality of like, well, let's not waste time for anybody here. I'll just be like, hey, I don't know how to do this. I know how to do that. That doesn't look too hard for me to learn. And I'm pretty sure I can pick it up. And then I think once people start to see that kind of like, I think that attitude is what people look for more so than somebody who has crap load of experience. I think the, the the want to learn, the passion to learn, and the ability is like more important, right? Because I think anybody can be taught something. It's whether or not they want to do it or not is more important, right? So, and that kind of like does tie into like the Hadrian mission of like, if if I'm 
I'm about to ramble into like a pretty broad stroke topic here of like manufacturing. Okay, so pardon me here. We have like a really big problem coming up, which is like people. We don't have a lot of people going into school to becoming manufacturing tradesmen, right? Like CNC guys or anything in this industry. We have a really big industry that involves like space, medical, defense, commercial, and energy. And these all require highly skilled like guys like us, like machinists to make this. It's a really big industry. A lot of billions of dollars go into this. We have like 30,000 shops across the US or something like that. And the average age for these shop owners are like in the 60s. And that's a big problem, right? Best case scenario, every single shop passes down to their son or daughter and they take over and continue the contracts from the government or things that we need to keep going as a, as a society. Worst case scenario, a lot of the shops don't exist in the next 10 years. And then the people that were making the things that we really need need to go to other people. But all those other people are already busy making stuff for other, other people. So this problem is real and we need to be able to stay on top of it before it happens. Because if we wait until it happens, it's going to be too late, right? You can't fix a problem when it's already there. You need to like look ahead. So how do we do that? Well, first is we need to create an environment where we can take people without experience and train them in a short amount of time so that they can still run machines and be technician and like do the things that are complicated. And so how do we do that? That's actually pretty hard. And the, the best example that I usually explain to people is like, all right, when you load a piece of stock onto a vice, it's very easy for you, right? But have you tried explaining that to someone who's never done it before? Hey, make sure when you put this piece of stock in there that when you torque it down, you look for a lift, that you're not tor- over-torquing it. Are there any chips on this thing? Is that stock cut straight? Are you putting it on the side where it's kind of like the bandsaw decided to go slanted a little bit? Like, there's so many things. Like, and you'll end up realizing when you try to write this down that it takes pages and pages of like notes to explain a very simple task. You and this it's, comp- it's funny yeah. you say that. So I had a friend, a, good, a really good friend. He doesn't live in town anymore, but he came by for. Uh, I think he was in here for a couple of days. But he was like, "Hey, can I come?" like, you know, faux intern in your shop for the day. Like, I've seen what you guys are doing. I think it's super cool. I want to do this. And so I had him run some, you know, pretty non-critical parts on Op2. And it was so funny, the little things I kept having to explain because I'm like, oh, he doesn't know this. He doesn't know, to, yeah. you know, he doesn't know to blow out the jaw, but oh, don't blow too hard because then you're going to blow up chips from inside the vice. And, yeah. you know, you got to wipe it down and make sure that there's nothing there. And, you know, we, you want to center it here. And like, yeah, every little thing. And, and he's a very mechanically gifted guy like this is his vocation is in technical stuff but just yeah even with somebody who has that much background in making things all of the little things i didn't think to explain until i saw him making those mistakes i was like Uh oh man yeah this is made me realize a i think when we finally bring an employee on it'll be a lot of fun because it'll be kind of rediscovering all of the things in machining you know Uh I, i think it's like what a lot of people say about having kids is like you know, you you get to relive your childhood. And I think right. it'll be like reliving my early days as a machinist. But it also made me realize, I was like, oh my God, there's so much to explain to somebody to get them to be where we need them to be. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you don't realize it. And this only gets worse as the task gets more complicated, right? So the idea is like, okay, like everything you just said right now, you know how to do those things because you have years and years of experience. You've learned from your mistakes and those have kept with you. How do we transfer that to somebody else who has never had those experiences in a quick time manner so that they can gain those experiences and do the tasks that needed? How do we get all this tribal knowledge that everyone has in their brain 
out to somebody else. And like the way that we're approaching it at Hadrian is we are basically making everything into a repeatable process by steps, right? We have like, you know, things like whether it's like pictures or documentation, everything is kind of like brought to your attention and you have to follow these steps to complete this task with a little bit of like, I think standard operating procedure stuff, like make sure that you don't, you know, you wear cut gloves, all that stuff aside, when it comes to the actual task of doing something, we have these systems created where like the person goes to the the screen by the CNC machine, they hit a button, the job opens up and it goes, okay, it's time to do this. Here's how you load this, do this. These are the things to look for. Did you finish this? Click yes, go to the next step. And we, we found out that if you do this, it's very easy for humans to follow steps if you tell them exactly what it is and you can explain it to them in a clear and concise manner, a lot of people can do these jobs. And I think for me, the biggest believer of that was when I saw that like we we hired people from all walks of life. I think there was a guy there that worked for, at Home Depot, it was just like some dude, right? And they hired him and now he's like one of our one of our best machinists at the shop. The security guard, he helps us load parts while he's there, like at night and stuff. We've hired people from like who used to be scuba divers, from pharmacy techs, like Chick-fil-A, like whatever. It doesn't matter where you're from. We can bring you into our system. We can give you a little bit of training. And then the rest of it is just like following instructions, breaking down the process of what we do. Like how do you put stock in? How do you load a tool? But also creating solutions to difficult problems incrementally and then making them digestible for like somebody who doesn't have that know-how. So that's right. kind of like what we're trying to do, right? So what I think the really difficult part of that too is you want to make systems that make it easy for people to succeed, but you also want to make these systems so that they learn why they're doing things because otherwise you end up with people who are just mindlessly following directions and when things break down, they don't know how to diagnose anything. You know, like if you're just like torque these collets to this thing yeah. and they have no idea how a call it works or why they're torquing it to a certain spec if something gets over tightened or under tightened and you know it hits the fan they're like i, I don't know i don't know what went wrong and yeah. then you have to have all corrective action versus like somebody just being like oh yeah i over torqued that or somebody over torqued that right and like so a lot of that is i think part of the culture is like we're always everyone there is always sharing with each other things that they know so like if i see somebody doing something wrong i'll just walk them like hey you should, you can try it like this. It's actually probably a lot easier. And what I've noticed is like, if you have a bunch of people with that same mindset, kind of always congregating together, we're just always teaching each other new things. We're always making sure that everyone's being safe, like being okay. And that just keeps translating, right? Because like, if I teach someone new, like, hey, uh, this is how you do this and be careful of that. That person learns that. And then when we hire new people and they see it, oh yeah, you should do that. And it just it just keeps going. And it's like this really amazing like human effect of you teach somebody how to do something, like you're watching them just train other people. It's like a really delightful experience of like watching that knowledge get passed around the shop. And I think the other thing that's important is like there is no ego. Like there is nobody that's better or worse at that company. We are all there for one singular mission. So we all have to support each other in like any way that we can. So that's another thing that I really love about there. It's like, I'm not embarrassed to ask questions and no one should be embarrassed to ask me anything. And I think with that, with that out of the way, uh, the questions are free flowing, right? Like we're constantly just sharing information and teams chatting each other and stuff like that. So, um, so that's how, like, that's how Hadrian as a company is trying to solve the problem. But honestly, like when I think about it myself, how else would you solve this problem of people? 
Like if we're not able to find experienced machinists in the next 10 years that are coming out, uh, like how do you do this? Like, and the only way to do it is by doing what we're doing is like training people that have no experience, but bringing them up to speed quicker and then imparting a lot of that tribal knowledge into process and documentation. Um, and I think that's the only way that you can scale. But when SpaceX decides to make a heavy, heavy Falcon rocket and like actually makes it to Mars and he needs like 40 spaceships, we need to be able to keep up with that demand. I can't just like, we can't go out and hire 40 machinists. Like, right. That's you can not have all work. the machines in the world, but it if you don't have somebody to run them, it exactly. doesn't mean anything. Yeah. All the capital in the world, all the finance will not solve this problem. This yeah. is a problem of technology and also like process, right? So, well, and I think there's twofold other parts of this problem too is a, as a culture, our messaging on what machining is has been so wrong for so long. Like it's people view it as this really, you know, dirty, nasty job when it's like super high tech and super fun. Um, had I known how cool it was, I never probably would have even considered going to school for engineering. I would have been like, oh, no, no, this is what I wanted to do the whole time. It's just like make cool shit all day. Like, this yeah. is, you know, and then the other part is pay. Like we as machinists and as shops have undervalued workers for the longest time. And I think you see it most right now in service technicians. Like I'm sure you've seen it. You try to mm-hmm. get service on any machine. You're like, Oh, you're a new face. And they're like, Oh yeah. Every single service tech has already left for another job. That's paying them a little more. And you're like, cool. Yeah. Okay. I guess <laughs> we'll, we'll get to know each other. And then two weeks later, you're like, Oh, that person's gone too. Like, yeah. Can I have one consistent person so that I can, <laughs> rely on my machine being up like yeah so i think as a industry we need to start valuing our employees more and paying them what they're worth and i'm sure that that's probably not an issue at hadrian because you know you guys do have the funding for that but man you you talk to a lot of shops and or or people who started their own shops and it's like well i was getting paid you know less than i would make at mcdonald's and they were doing poor work so i figured i could do better it's like okay <laughs> it's it's crazy right because like i saw a sign at in and out saying they're paying their servers 23 dollars an hour and i was like whoa that's that's a decent chunk of change for somebody uh with that you could get a job for no experience no no education stuff like that that's pretty crazy and like it does make you wonder about like that what you said is true like we don't value the people that we really do need to run like a lot of stuff we should pay them more because we need them and you're right like our our i guess manufacturing persona to the rest of the world is very bad like and i've thought about this a lot right and i think your podcasts i think other youtube videos we do we're doing a good job of presenting manufacturing in a way we're like hey check us out like this could be a very lucrative career not just financially but also technically right like a lot of the things that we do are very important i mean we're making things that are going up into space that could alter like the trajectory of like humankind right so i think all the things that everyone's doing is very important. I think we got to keep at it. We could do a better job somehow. I don't know how though. Like we have to change like the face of it. And when I asked my niece and nephew, Hey, how did, where did this toy come from? How did it get made? They just say Amazon. And I'm just like, well, how did yeah. it get made? And like, I don't know from Amazon, they don't even know that there's an entire industry or like that exists to make this product, the engineers, the design, the manufacturing technician, all that stuff. Right. Right? So, I mean, I yeah, think it, arguably 3D printing has done more to bring people into manufacturing than anything in the past probably 10 years because it is a more ubiquitous thing. You know, you ask kids, huh. what's a CNC machine? And they're like, I don't know. And you're like, what's a, a 3D printer? They're like, oh, I, you know, they'll tell you like all these cool stories about it or they'll show you a YouTube video that uses it. And really, I, 
give a lot of credit to people like Winston or, you know, Zach from Breaking Taps, where they're this, they're kind of straddling the line of like, I'm doing cool products and cool projects with manufacturing, but it brings in a larger audience. You know, like if, like, you know, Brad and I want to start making uh, like tutorial videos and like, you know, here's how we process a part really quick. Here's how we program, blah, blah, blah. But like, that's most likely only going to be seen by machinists. Same with this podcast. Like, I love that it has the reach that it does, but I can guarantee you that 90% of the people plus that listen to it are machinists already. And it's like, you're not the person I need to bring into the trade. Right. And so I, I think having that wider audience is really, really important. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And that's something that, like, I guess us as an entire industry need to figure out how to do a better job of, like, conveying that to others. Right. But yeah, I mean, so like this, so you have this like mishmash of like issues, the scaling, people not being able to scale. And like, I think ultimately that's why I ended up at Hadrian because like, I felt like the things and choices that we're making to solve these problems were aligned with the way in my brain that I would try to solve these problems. So um, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a crazy ride. I think one of my happiest moments also was like Winston had visited last week at Hadrian and I basically just spent like 30 minutes showing him the workflow of how I program it part. And when I, when I was done, I turned over to him and it's like, so what do you think? He's like, it's like, I can't even speak right now. Like my brain has just <laughs> imploded on itself. And I was yeah. laughing because like, I didn't realize how much information that I just dumped on him because I, I'm in it every day. But like for somebody who's never seen it, he was just like, holy crap, dude, like this is crazy. The level of automation that we've done. And like never in a world when I first started that I think I'd be at someplace like Adrian, but let alone like, when I get a part, I hit like one button and like magically the work holding develops. All the like the tool paths for the holes and stuff get made. We have buttons that create fixtures. We have everything is just like so auto magically generated. And then we have an amazing like software that connects us together. So like ultimately being able to as a customer see exactly where your part is on the machine and live and then see that it's gonna be late or early. And then like having inspection and machining and DFM and quoting MPOs and all that stuff linked together into one system. That's the only way we are going to solve this problem because using the tools of the past is not going to get us to where we need to be. So I think our founder kind of knew that and he was like, we got to build this from the ground up. And ultimately that's what we're doing there. So really excited to be a part of that mission and um, hopefully this this will basically be my contribution if if we can succeed in our mission, right? Like to the manufacturing industry and stuff. And I think for me, like I've always thought of setting up like a shop, like maybe in my retirement days, and also doing a lot of like outreach stuff because like I really love to share the things that I'm doing with like kids and younger people to get them interested. Only because I felt like I wish someone had done that for me. Have had I just met that one dude, that old grumpy man who makes stuff, if he would have just like talk to me for like a minute that might have gotten me into this manufacturing space earlier right so yeah so yeah for sure that's pretty cool yeah. well let's get into some listener questions igs dan asked first now that you've moved on from desktop machines into the big leagues what has been your favorite high-end machine tool to run and he says clearly a biased question but honestly <laughs> is the best policy <laughs> <laughs> oh dan this is a I have two machines, and I think I have decent reasons for both. It would be the Kern and the Hermley. But the Kern is very good at making smaller size parts. And when I say smaller, like probably like six inch by six inch or less. Can you make bigger stuff? Yes, I have tried. Does it work? Absolutely. But I think it excels at like 
smaller types of things, the motion, the the accuracy, the repeatability and stuff. It's a gray machine. If and it is a smaller footprint, so that's definitely a positive, but definitely comes at a higher price tag because of that. So Hermley's though surprised me because when I first started using the Hermley, I didn't realize how accurate those things are, how consistent they are. They're like a workhorse. I mean, we beat on those things all day, seven days a week, still holding micro intolerances, no problem. Excellent repeatability, like price tag a little bit cheaper, can do a lot of the things that Kern can do in a sense, but just in a different form factor, right? But yeah, if if I had to pick one machine in my garage, it would basically depend on your wallet. Could I fit a Kern <laughs> in there? And then also, could I could I fit the things I wanted to make on a Kern on there? And if those two align, put the Kern in. But if it was, I don't have the wallet, or I need to make bigger parts, Hermley all day. I'm a big fan. Even over the Grobe. The Grobe's envelope is just way too big. Like It just takes up a lot of space. And I think the Hermley is just a really... I've come to really love that machine just because of what I've seen, what it's capable of, day in and day out consistently. Yeah, so it was fun. But yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're looking at these two machines, your life is pretty good. These are both right. excellent machines. I love them both. <laughs> And for the same reasons that I just said is it's depending on which one I would pick would be depending on like the wallet and the space and like the size part. Totally. Yeah. So his other question, and this was a part of your story that we didn't touch on was how's the motorcycle part business and are you still involved? And that was something (laughs) we skipped over completely. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. I am involved just in a different sense. So like I don't program for them anymore. That friend of mine that I met community college who he ended up coming to visit the shop one time and just kind of fell in love with like the guys there and, they all like hang out now and stuff. So he actually programs for them. They bought a, so we had that UMC 500. They bought a VF4 and then they bought two more like used. I'm not even sure the brand, but basically I think they were like Japanese machines, like old three axis stuff. And they've been trucking along making parts. I just kind of check in with them and I do like basically shop process stuff. So like I will, uh, show them like, hey, this is how we should set up the tool organization tray, or this is how we should should set up the tooling here. We should standardize tools this way for the machine so that if this machine goes down, we can easily go to the next machine and all the tool numbers are the same. I mean, just stuff like that. So I, I do more of like process stuff. I don't do any programming, but I do design some parts for them sometimes when it uh, when I kind of have like the, the urge to kind of do something creative. I'll be like, hey, I saw this would be kind of cool. Here and I would just I would send them my design and they would kind of run with it and stuff. So uh, Hadrian does keep me pretty busy. So there's it's hard to like come home after a day of like working out all the things in your brain and then have enough in the tank to like oh let's go make this like thing on the side. I've been that itch has been getting stronger with each day. So I think in the very new, soon future I'll probably end up trying to make something. But yeah, I am part of it, just not like programming and stuff anymore because obviously Hadrian keeps me busy, but. I still kind of help out. Those are close friends of mine, and I'm always there to like kind of assist when they need me. Yeah, awesome. Do you still have a pocket NC at home too? No. So I ended up I returned the pocket NC, and then I have the Nomad, and it's been in my garage collecting dust. So that's actually the probably the first thing I'm going to move into the house uh, and kind of get going again. But that's the only CNC that I own right now is the Nomad Three. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, Vince Fab asked, can you ask if the Saunders 5-axis class he took had any effect on the impressive trajectory of his career? <laughs> it did. Like, I remember before we bought the UMC 500, 
that's when I flew out to the class because I wanted to touch a UMC and like get a feel for its capabilities, get a feel for like, is this something that I think I can kind of like handle? Because this would be the first time that like I would actually be putting money down for like a machine myself, right? So no, it did. And then like that class was helpful in a sense of like getting my feet wet a little bit, learning some programming strategies for like a real CNC machine. It was it was really helpful. And I'm I'm really glad that I took it. And also like, you know, like anything, our community is pretty cool. Like it's very rare that I just don't meet really nice, awesome people when I'm out there and these same spaces, right? Whether that's the Autodesk uh, Academy thing or meeting people at Saunders shop, it's like you always meet nice, cool people. And that connection is pretty neat to have because you never know who you're going to run into and what you're going to learn from them. Yeah, definitely. Definitely helpful. And uh, my career path trajectory is mostly luck and I think an opportunity and definitely the people that I have met have helped shape that. And I take no credit for that. I've just been here on a ride, just kind of uh, <laughs> accepting what's been happening to me. That's what it feels like, at least. I think you're you're far too humble about that. But no, that's that's great. It really is about the people you meet. Like that can really change everything. I completely yeah. agree there. Uh, Seven Sir HC asked if you're going to be kind and design a good tombstone for the pocket NC at some point. I think Winston or not Winston Ed almost had like a fully designed one out that he actually had someone make. I actually was trying to make a slow profile centering vice for it. And I actually had a prototype kind of done, but then I ended up finishing school. I lost the ability to use that Haas. And then when I got to the job, I wasn't allowed to touch those machines for personal projects, like at the mold shop and stuff. So I lost the ability to kind of like play around and stuff. So I would love to, but it, from what I hear, Penta Machine's got a new big boy coming out pretty soon. And I'm sure making a tombstone for that might be a little bit more interesting. So we'll see. Okay. Well, that brings me to shop news and new things. What's new in your world? Anything fun you've been working on or that you can share? And yeah, just what's new and exciting? Uh, For me, most of the fun stuff that I'm working on has been just at work. Like the parts that we're getting are some of the more complex things I've never seen before a lot of curved surfaces and really difficult things. And we have a mantra at Hadrian, which is like edge break everything. And that can quickly lead to how do I edge break that? Like that's a weird thing, right? So definitely pushing the boundaries and limits of my skills to be able to like, I know it sounds really dumb, but like, dude, when you think about it, try to edge break everything. It's harder than it looks, man. Like Sometimes when when edges meets into walls and do weird things, like how do you do that? So a lot of my learning has been around how to do that because you can't scale with a deburr department. So we have to machine and edge break everything on the machine. That's the only way you can scale, which forces all of us to be a lot better at like programming and doing weird surfacing things. So that's been the most fun, at least for me. At times, sometimes it can be pretty frustrating to try to get things to work, but that's like the more interesting thing that we're working on. Not really doing much otherwise, other than just like I'm kind of researching some stuff here and there for like pens. I've always I've talked about this a lot. I have nothing to show for it yet, but basically I just keep an ear out and an eye on like new pens that are coming out. I like pen me- mechanisms and things like that. So I always keep my eye on what's going out on Kickstarter, what's being made, what's being sold, how successful is that. So that maybe one day in the back of my brain, I'll be like, all right, it's time. Let's let's make a pen. Like, let's do this. Yeah. Awesome. Actually, so that, that brings up a question, not the pen stuff, but the edge break and all that. You've now worked in a couple very quick turn shops. What are one or two pieces of 
information that you've learned about how to process parts faster that you think you can pass on to the listeners? I think the best advice I could give is like, look at your workflow and actually look at how long it takes you to do each step. So how long does it take you to choose a tool? How long does it take you to pick feeds and speeds? How long does it take you to go into the shop and actually find that tool where it actually is supposed to be at? Is it in this shelf or is it in that cabinet? Is it in the machine? How long does it take you to do these things and start really piecing together how much time you waste in those areas or where improvement can lie and really start to tackle those things. And eventually you're going to get to this inflection point of like, okay, I've done like 80% of lean improvement. This last 20% is really difficult. And hey, you know what? That's okay. You don't need to automate or make that faster. But if you can like streamline 80% of your workflow, that's how you get fast parts done. I, I am not bumbling around feeds and speeds because I've spent the time setting up templates and things like that in my library. I'm not looking for stock because I have it neatly organized and I know exactly what's out there. So I don't need to go with a caliper or ruler and go measure and see what I have. Things like pre-cut stock, if you can, to standardize is great. What am I spending? Like, am I looking for things? That's the worst one, man. Just figure out a way to put things where they need to be and know where they are. Having to search for like a torque wrench or an end mill is like, it's soul crushing for me, right? So making sure all that stuff's organized, take away all the variables that cause you pain that you can. And then usually the last 20% is like five axis toolpaths because that's like difficult to automate. But can you automate some three axis stuff? I think you can. Like even in Fusion, right? Like Rob Lockwood did a really good job of like doing like container programming where if you're not familiar or the listener's not familiar, he basically set up these templates in Fusion where like you had a box and all you had to do is put the model in the box and the toolpath isn't looking at the model, it's looking at the container. And then he would just hit generate and then the adaptive toolpath would just spit out Roughing toolpath. So like, even if you don't have a team of software engineers developing automation for you, it doesn't matter. There are ways to automate with your ability and current skill right now that you may not be aware of. You just have to dig a little bit to see what you can do. And you'd be surprised at how much time you can save by just knocking out the little things. Having a good way to refill coolant, like having systems in place for calibration, like just take away all the variables and streamline what you can. And ultimately, that's how you make fast parts is when you're not looking for things and I can just count on the system in place to, to execute so that when I need to execute, I'm not there like bumbling along, like trying to figure stuff out. So that's my best advice for like how to make things really fast is take away all your blockers and make things make things faster where you can. And don't try to do everything. It's impossible. Just do what you can. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. Well, that brings me to the last two questions I ask every guest every week. First of which is, what did you research this week? doesn't have to be machining related. It can be, but just what's been popping up in your browser. Okay, you caught me in a weird week. I've done a lot of research for a lot of stuff right now. So recently I got back from Italy on like a really belated honeymoon. Like my wife and I got married in COVID, so we couldn't take a trip. So we went to Italy for two weeks and like it was actually the first time I had coffee there. I don't drink coffee here at all. Um, oh really yeah never because like i i'm super caffeine sensitive so like it just makes me feel like my heart's gonna jump out of my chest so i had an espresso there and a cappuccino and i was like damn this is really good and when i got (laughs) home i tried to order coffee here and i was like okay this is not the same and it's different and i don't i don't like it as much but i like the espresso and the cappuccino that i had over there so i went on a really deep rabbit hole of like buying an espresso machine i bought a coffee grinder and like, there's something oddly satisfying about being able to 
thing that you make. You know, like we make parts and stuff, but I can't like eat it, right? But this coffee thing is actually very similar where I'm grounding the beans to a specific ground size. I'm putting them into this portafilter and I'm using a tool to spread the beans out evenly so the water dispersion is equal. I'm using filters and shower caps to make sure the water doesn't and like it's almost like CNC, but in a sense, you're it's you're instead of end mills cutting metal, you're using water to draw out coffee from beans. And like right. there's something really satisfying about it. And like I actually love making them more than I like drinking them. I'm always asking her, <laughs> like, hey, you want a cappuccino? She's like, it's like nine o'clock at night. I'm like, it's okay, like I'll go make it right now. So I've been I've been researching a lot of that lately. And also the other thing we did in Italy was we took a pasta cooking class out in Florence. And it made me realize making handmade pasta is actually not as hard as I thought it was gonna be. It's actually no, it's very, really not. It's very doable. And I was yeah. like, okay. So I've been researching all the pasta tools that we would need at home so that we can make fresh pasta. And then my wife's in charge of making like the sauce. So we've kind of teamed up in that. So between the coffee, the espresso machine, and also the pasta making stuff, that's kind of what I've been researching for the last week or so. So you like process-driven things is really what it sounds like. Because coffee it's, is definitely process-driven. You know, you got your weights, you got your yeah. you know, weight in, weight out, all that stuff. And oh, yeah. With, like, yeah. I'm deep, man. Like... I get the coffee beans, I measure 19 grams, I put in the grinder, I take it out, I measure that there's 19 grams of beans out there. I put the scale on when I do the brew and I measure up to 42 grams of coffee and then I stop. Like, And it's it sounds like a lot, right? When my friends watch me make it, they're like, dude, you're crazy. This is like stupid. I'm like, I don't know, man. I just, I kind of love it. Like, And the fact that at the end I get to enjoy, like drink this thing, it's actually oddly satisfying. I never would have thought that I would have enjoyed it as much as I do. Yeah, it, it's fun. I, both Brad and I have an espresso machine. I've got one that is a little more automated. Like, I don't really have control over temperature and pressure. It just kind of does it. But still, like, you know, grinding the beans is nice. WDT tool, yep. all that kind of stuff. It's, yep. it's a lot of fun. And it's pretty delicious, you know, especially when if you're used to, like, you know, Folgers drip coffee and then you have you know, some nice espresso. It's like, okay, this is worth a little bit more effort for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I, I bought the Gaggia Classic Pro because I found there was like a huge community behind it for modding. And I was like, okay, cool. This will get my coffee thing itch taken care of. And on top of that, I can add an Adreno to it and I can control flow rate, temperature, like pressure. Like I'm like, all right, this is dope. Like I can kind of combine those two worlds together and I can basically mod the machine to be, to do what I want as my taste, like it's more like my palate gets a little bit better, right? So that's um, what Brad has too. Yeah. And yeah. He, he has, I think, all of the stuff except for like a few of the pressure switches for the mod. And I think he's just, I can't remember if he ordered them and then they canceled the order or something, but he's just like a few parts and a few hours away from having that thing more automated than it is. Yeah. I'll never forget the first time I pulled the shot on this person machine. It tasted so bad. And I just remember feeling so dejected. I was like, what did I just do? I just spent all this money to make like really shitty coffee. And I was like, oh man. And then I just went back at it. Like I just did more research. I started record like, okay, it's acidic, it's sour. Is Am I under extracting? Am I over extracting? And then eventually like I got the recipe down and I just remember like, damn, I did it. Like this actually tastes pretty good. It's not sour. <laughs> it's like, and I was like, man, this is awesome. Like, so yeah, I, I do like the process stuff and it's like I said, it's strange because I never would have thought that I would have enjoyed making coffee as much as I do. And I think that goes back to what I said earlier is like, always say yes to everything. You just, you never know, man. Like you never know what 
is going to pop up in life that's going to make you happy or make you not happy. But either way, you'll find out what that is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and like you said, you have to go at it. Like you have to really give it your all because, yeah, I mean, for the coffee example, there are so many ways you can screw it up. Like there's nothing worse than, you know, getting channeling and it's shooting out sideways and covering oh, yeah. your counter and coffee. And you're like, oh, my goodness, I don't want to do this anymore. I just wanted to drink a cup of coffee. <laughs> Yeah. And I was pretty, I just like, I was so dejected and it took a day for me to rebound. And I was like, all right, I'm going to, I need to make a coffee. Cause first of all, I knew it could be done. Those old dudes in Italy, they do it in like 30 seconds and that cup was delicious. Right. So I was like, can be done. I just suck. I just need to get good. And then I was like, all right, let's just start. Like, you know, move the grind size, get the flow a little bit longer, blah, blah. blah. And then eventually it's like variables in CNC, right? If you're getting chatter, break it down. Okay. Is the ML broken? Is it new? Is it old? Is the machine been calibrated? Am I cutting the material that I thought I was supposed to be cutting? Like, what is it? And just like, it's the same thinking process, right? And I think that also makes it fun for me because something that I'm doing in my personal life can actually help me in my professional life because this, this type of critical thinking and kind of fine-tuning that process is very helpful, right? So, yeah. Totally. Well, so you mentioned personal life. My other question is, what are the things that you are working on to be a better person, leader, employee, what have you? None of us are perfect and we're all working on stuff. What's yours? So as a person, it's like my wife and I have this thing is like we we are always trying to find new ways to expose new things to each other. So like I remember when I first met my wife, she had never had a hamburger before. And I was like, the F? Like, how is this even possible? <laughs> And the first thing I did is like, I took her to In-N-Out. I was like, this is like the quintessential like hamburger, right? This is every day. Umami burger is great and all, but like In-N-Out is like the thing. And I remember seeing like, oh, she's like, this is really good. Cause she had only had like a Burger King or McDonald's hamburger when she was a kid. She didn't like it. So I think finding new things for each other that we haven't discovered before is actually really fun. I get a lot of joy from seeing her face light up. Uh, if we can share something that I enjoy. And it's also kind of fun to see if she hates something as well, but I think I we both strive for that to just try to like find new things. And then as far as like a leader thing, in the back of my mind, I'm always trying to pretend like I could be a leader. And if I was a leader, how would I be better at it? And a lot of that is just me observing good leaders. So like I will watch the way they talk, the way they make decisions, how the person responds. And I'm kind of just secretly collecting all these little like tricks that I've seen people do. And same thing for like bad leaders, right? oh, that, I didn't like that. That was not good. And I don't think they like that either. Or if it happened to me, like, this is not how I want to be a boss someday. I keep that pretty locked in as well. And I use, like I said, good leaders to help shape my mindset of how to be one. If the occasion were ever to arise to be one, I would want to be prepared for that and not be like trying to figure out how to be a leader at that moment, right? It's like, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Um, And then what was the last one? Oh, just it was any of those. Oh, okay. Uh, I think employee was the last one, but oh, yeah, just yeah, yeah. It, and then it could just be one. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I'll give you all three. And then employee, uh, making sure that I am because I'm a part of a team of ten cam programmers, and just making sure that like, even if I don't know something, it's fine. Make sure I find that answer within the team, and that I'm a I'm a contributing member. Like I never want to feel like I'm pulling the team down in any way. So like. I'll do whatever I can to make sure that I can be of some use. Now, a, a really bad example would be like, I don't know how to do this part, but my team member does. How can I do all the other things that I know how to do to help that team member succeed in that thing? So he can focus on the part that I'm bad at programming. I will make the fixture or I will go set up his 
tools or a machine or I will sweep the floor or whatever. Like I'll just take on all the other things that I can do. And then while he's doing that, I'll just watch and I'll learn. And then the next time that thing comes around, I know how to do that now because I watched somebody do it. I think that's how I try to be a better employee is making sure that I can contribute. And when I can't, I will contribute in other ways and I will learn so that I know next time how to do that thing. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really great to hear your whole story and kind of get to pick your brain about, you know, you've had, like I said, such an interesting career path that it's been super cool to hear all about it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Super honored to be here. And I hope people listening, if anyone's ever like on the fence about changing careers, man, just just do it, dude. If, if you love it, do it. Like, don't think twice. Like I said, my biggest regret was waiting so long and, uh, and look at where it got me, right? Like, just kind of like lucked out into this thing that I really enjoy doing. And I now do the thing that I've, I could not have imagined that I would be doing when I first started. So when you're happy, I think great things kind of happen around you because your attitude and your passion kind of creates kind of like goes outward. And I think people can see that and feel that as well. So, yeah, totally. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you to new Patreon member, Brad. Thank you all for listening. And I will be back next week.